Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance and more, and GEICO is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to GEICO.com or contact your local agent today. The Exxon Radio and TV show is largely an opinion talk show. All opinions, comments, or statements of fact expressed by Rob McConnell's guests are strictly their own and are not to be construed as those of the Exxon Radio and TV show or in any manner endorsed by Rob McConnell, Relmar McConnell Media Company, Talkstar Radio Network, its affiliated stations, or employees. All-Hit Radio. Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell. Welcome back to the Exxon, everyone. My name is Rob McConnell, coming to you from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Toll-free worldwide, 1-800-610-7035. Email exxon at exxonradiotv.com. On MSN Messenger, exxonradiotv at hotmail.com. And our website, www.exxonradiotv.com. I have the following uh, hurricane update on Hurricane Irene that the newsroom has asked me to pass to you, the members of the Exxon Nation. 
Hurricane Irene continues to churn toward the U.S. East Coast, and all indications are that this storm will be, as President Obama said, historic. Here are some of the events that weather experts say could develop over the next 48 hours. Irene is bringing gusty winds, heavy rain, and dangerous surf to the South Carolina coast today. North Carolina will be pounded by Irene's force Friday night and Saturday. Irene will head north Sunday, hitting a large swath from Virginia to Maine. Metro, major metro areas of Philadelphia, New York, and Boston should brace for possible widespread damage, including major flooding as Irene hits Sunday. The strongest of Irene's power will be uh, to the east of its center. Widespread power outages are expected over a large section of the northeast. New York's metro transit system will shut down Exxon Nation at noon on Saturday, and East Coast travel, travel will be severely disrupted. Starting tonight, hundreds of flights and Amtrak trains have already been canceled. For more information, uh, you can check out the your local broadcast website. And in a time of emergency, according to the people of FEMA, tune your radio to a local radio station where local authorities will be able to give you instructions pertaining to Hurricane Irene. Once again, now that is from the Exxon Newsroom. My guest this hour, Exxon Nation, is Scotty Roberts. We're going to be talking to Scotty about his new book that comes out in February, The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim, uh, the untold story of fallen angels, giants on the earth, and their extraterrestrial origins. Uh, Scott is the founder and executive director of Intrepid Magazine, a journal dedicated to politics, science, and unexplained phenomena. And uh, we're very happy to have Scott with us today. And Scott, welcome to the Exxon. Hey, thanks for having me, Rob. I appreciate it. Uh, you've got your new book that we were talking about briefly, The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim, coming out uh, this February through New Page Books. Uh, tell us a little bit about it. Well, it is a, a book that is not original in its content. You mm-hmm. can uh, go out there in the bookstores and on the Internet and find all kinds of things that have been written about the Nephilim. And this is just my take on it. Um, I could have written a book that was a heavy-duty you know, reference material mm-hmm. type of book, uh, or I, which I opted for, I could have written a book that had more opinion in it, that had more uh, telling the tale of what it's about, mixed in with a lot of the uh, resource material and reference material. There's some etymology of ancient Hebrew and words like that, and sure. sort of dig into it a little deep, deeper in that sense. But uh, it's a book I think that will be offer up reference and at the same time be enjoyable to read. You know, of course, I'm the author, so I'm going to say that. Sure. But uh, I just finished writing the book uh, this last week, and it went off to the publisher. And so it's uh, slated for a January or February release. I've heard both from the publishers, so I'm not sure which is which. Scotty, stand by. You and I have to take a commercial break. We'll be back in two minutes, Exxon Nation. Our guest this hour is... Are you ready for this? Because I know you're going to want to go to your bookstore and ask for his book when it comes out in uh, February. Scott Allen Roberts is our guest. The name of his book is The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim. It is published by our good friends at New Page Books. Scott and I will be back on the other side of this commercial break in two minutes as we continue from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada on the Talkstar Radio Network, Exome Broadcast Network, UK High Definition Radio, Euro High Definition Radio, Star Cable, and our affiliates right around the world. We'll be back. Don't go away.
the we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Geico asks, how would you love a chance to save some money on insurance? Of course you would. And when it comes to great rates on insurance, Geico can help. Like with insurance for your car, truck, motorcycle, boat, and RV. Even help with homeowners or renters coverage. Plus, add an easy-to-use mobile app, available 24-hour roadside assistance and more, and GEICO is an easy choice. Switch today and see all the ways you could save. It's easy. Simply go to GEICO.com or contact your local agent today. Nation, uh, Scott Allen Roberts is our guest this hour. We're talking about a new book that he has written. It's going to be coming out in February of 2012, The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim. Uh, the untold story of fallen angels, giants on the earth, and their extraterrestrial origins. His website is intrepidmag.com. Um, maybe for some of our listeners who may be new to what you and I are talking about, could you describe and tell them what the Nephilim are? Sure. Uh, now, most uh, most people living uh, in the United States and Canada uh, are in a Christianized type of nation, and in former years, most of us went to Sunday school, and we learned all those biblical stories that have become almost uh, storybook stories. It's what they evolved to. Mm-hmm. And we all heard stories of Noah and the Ark, of course, you know, God saying the wickedness of man, and he's going to destroy the earth and wipe it out with a flood, but Noah was the only righteous man left, and so he chooses Noah and all the animals and so on. Well, what is left out of that teaching, uh, I, I, I went all the way through church as a kid, I went to Bible school, I went to seminary, I was in ministry, and in all of those years never had any teaching about the preamble to the flood, which you find in Genesis chapter 6. And as I started looking into this, I found that every culture of the ancient world had its own version of this story, of a a major flood that was brought on by the god or the gods, 
that was in retaliation or in punishment mm-hmm. for wickedness of some kind. And so when I started looking into this, it starts, in, and this is just quoting off the top of my head, I'm not reading it, so I'm paraphrasing a bit, but in Genesis chapter 6, it talks about, uh, and the sons of God descended to the earth and intermingled with the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were known as the Nephilim. Right. And they were, and in the Genesis passage, they're called the heroes of old and the men of renown. And that's really all it says in Genesis, but that's one of the main source points for the word Nephilim, which has become very uh, imbued with mythos of its own over the years. And you start going to some of the apocryphal books, like Enoch, which was a book that was booted out of the canon of Scripture, you know, back in the 300s during all these different councils of Nicaea and so on, invoked by Constantine, mm-hmm. uh, because there was argument over whether or not it was, it was breathed of God. But you go to the book of Enoch, and you find the same identical passage with the same wording as you find in Genesis, except it's much longer and more detailed, talking about these sons of God or, as, as Enoch also referred to them, as the Watchers, who came down, intermingled with human women, had children by them, which sounds like all kinds of mythology right there. Until you start looking at, well, the way I put it is this. There's no scientific methodology to it. You can't coax a son of God or a Watcher or an angel, as, as some people define them, into a lab and, and take a human woman and say, all right, uh, you two go at it, we want to see what happens. You sure. can't apply that kind of scientific methodology, and of course I'm saying that a bit tongue-in-cheek. So, but what you can do is you look at the annals of history, and you look at, there's at least 600 different tribal cultures of four to 6,000 years ago mm-hmm. that have their versions of the flood story, and almost, and common to almost all of them, is spirit beings or beings not of this earth that intermingled with human women had children, and some deity or some higher power destroyed the earth because of it. And when you start parsing down the Hebrew language in Genesis chapter 6, and and this is, believe it or not, it's really basic stuff. And when I'm writing about in the book, you know, how do you make the etymology of ancient Hebrew language fun and exciting to read about? You know, what's the passion behind that? So I, I try to approach it that way and tell the story and say there are certain words in here in the Hebrew that mean something. Uh, for instance, uh, the name used for God in the Old Testament of the Bible almost 3,000 times is the Hebrew word Elohim. And the name for God was El, and Im was the plural ending. And I found that the name used almost 3,000 times was a plural reference to God. Now, some people will write this off as, oh, it's the Trinity, you know, God yeah. the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Well, it doesn't say that. No, well, even 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 in the book of Genesis, it uh, you know it said, and God said, "Let us make man in our exactly. image." Yeah. Now that's a, that's an English rendition of that, and that's the big problem we have when we read some of these scriptural stories in English, is that it's the people who who transl- uh, translated those passages in some tech context transliterated words okay. to give you the English Bible. Now, so what you've got is the word Elohim, which is God, and it's kind of similar to the word deer. You can say, I see a deer standing in my front yard, or there is a herd of deer over there in that pasture. Mm-hmm. It can be used plurally or singularly, depending on the context of all the words around it. So, for instance, if you go to the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, you'll, Psalm 82, you'll find it says in the English, and God came to the divine council and said, you are gods, you are princes of heaven. 
uh, when you read it in the Hebrew, it says this. It says, And hello, Elohim, singular, stood in the midst of the Elohim, plural, and called them gods, Elohim, and princes of heaven, the bright shining ones. And this is, in the book, what I've, what I've found is that this divine council is, is not, God is not as monotheistic as we think it is in Judeo-Christian teaching, because God had this council of the gods, but he was the supreme. It was almost like Zeus, the Olympians, right. and things like that. And there is a lot so, of similarities to Greek mythology to Christianity. Oh, there is. You yeah. go to the book of Job. Chronologically, it's the oldest book written in the Old Testament. And it's pre-Judaism, pre-Hebrew, mm-hmm. probably post-flood. Uh, and, you know, you got to get out of your mind. The storybook pictures of the flood and all the teachings we've had. Uh, there's so much evidence that a flood took place and so much writing about it. There's no question a flood took place. Whether or not it was universal or it was localized is the big question. But all these cultures speak of the flood. So... The book of Job was written sometime between the, the end of the flood and before uh, uh, Moses, so in that time period. But it says in there, there's that passage at the beginning where it says, and, and God was in the courts of heaven meeting with the divine council of the other gods, and the Satan, it's got an article in front of his name, so it's a title, the Satan came and accused Job. And God says, well, do whatever you want to him, you know, just don't take his life. It, it has that same exact picture of picturing Zeus with the Olympians, and they're playing chess or games with the lives of humans. Hmm. So you can see where mythologies start to cross over and where one draws from the other. And, of course, mythology is, uh, is so much older than Christianity is. It is indeed. Yeah. I mean, you start getting, I only touch on this ever so lightly in my book, but if you start getting into the, the Indian, the Vedic, and you talk about the yugas, the four cycles. Um, uh, We're in the final cycle, and it says that every something like eight million years, the the, the universe destroys and recreates itself. And how many times have we been through this is the question. And you look at even writings like uh, the fiction of J.R.R. Tolkien writing Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. Uh, He drew his material from all this kind of stuff, these ages of man, the ages of the elves, the ages of so on. This all comes out of that that uh, that yuga cycle as a basis for his mythology that he created. Now, when we call the these these Nephilim giants, are we talking about their physical size, or are we talking about the the amount of power and the knowledge that they had? There's a little bit of both. When the English Bible says, "and there were giants on the earth in mm-hmm. those days," that was a mistranslation of Nephilim. Uh, Nephilim comes from this word, the Hebrew word nephal, means to fall, to come down, to descend, to leave someplace. The im is that plural ending, just like an Elohim for God, making it plural. Nephalim is those who fell, those who came down, those who descended. And so what you've got with these characters are, are people that have, that have come down to the earth, impregnated humans, which of course breeds in current day all the extraterrestrial type of mythology that goes. And I probably drifted way off your question because I can't remember what your question was. But uh, this is something I also address in the book, is that uh, there are trains of thought Mm -hmm. that label this as extraterrestrial. And I I find that just like you have the Judeo-Christians or the conservative Christians that will gripe and complain about anybody who says anything like that or detracts from the Word of God, you've got the same thing from the ancient alien side of things, which 
a lot of them as their leaping off point, I'm an atheist. I don't want to believe that it was God, so I have this. But the evidence for both sides is, is pretty extreme, and coming down and deciding which side of that coin you want to be on is you know, what you ultimately do with this story. Interesting. How long did it take you to write this book? Well, let's see. I started about three-plus years ago with an article that I wrote for Taps Para magazine mm-hmm. on the Nephilim. And uh, a couple of people said, you know, you ought you to write that as a book. And I, I explored it a bit. I had an agent, and I looked through, and I started writing, and then I shelved it and wrote it and shelved it. And, and it wasn't until, and it was kind of fast-tracked. Um, Marie D. Jones is a very good friend of mine. She's written several books for the new page. Mm-hmm. And uh, she brought me into her publisher there and said, you ought to take a look at Scotty's proposal. And that was uh, March 17th of this year. I submitted a proposal, and by April 1st, I had a contract to write this book and try to have it done by the end of July. And it took me until almost the end of August. So I had a couple of extensions in there. But it's something I've been thinking about for years. Yeah. I've been lecturing on this for years. Um, and I'd started writing it, but it wasn't until, you know, you get the contract. And as I've said rather tongue-in-cheek, writing a book is much less daunting than finishing a book. <laughs> All right, stand by, Scotty. You and I have to take our news break at the bottom of the Great. hour. Exonation, uh, Scotty Roberts is our guest. Uh, we're talking about his new book that is coming out, hopefully, February of 2012, The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim. The Untold Story of Fallen Angels, Giants on Earth, and Their Extraterrestrial Origin. This is The Exxon. I'm Rob McConnell. Don't go away. By a million people, I still feel all alone. Just want to go home. Texting privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting enrolls for recurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, stop, stop. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. My first grader was behind in reading, and this program has made a huge difference. She's now reading above grade level. I use it for my kids' nightly reading for school. We love it, and it's super easy and quick to do. My kid, who just turned four years old and has been using the program since January of this year, can now read read. Thank you so much, Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word KID to 323232 right now. It's fast and easy. Text KID to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text the word KID to 323232. Text KID to 323232. You're listening to the X-Zone Radio Show, live and around the world on the Talkstar Radio Network. X-Zone Broadcast Network. UK High Definition Radio. Euro High Definition Radio. And Star Cable. Our toll-free telephone number worldwide is 1-800-610-7035. Our email address, xzone at xzoneradiotv.com. On MSN Messenger, xzoneradiotv at hotmail.com. And our website, www www.exxoneradiotv.com Welcome by the roadside. 
Welcome back to the Exxon, everyone. Our special guest this hour is Scott Allen Roberts, www.intrepidmag.com. And we're talking about his new book that's coming out in February of next year by our friends at New Page Books. It's entitled The Rise and Fall of the Nephilim, The Untold Story of Fallen Angels, Giants on Earth, on the Earth, I should say, and Their Extraterrestrial Origins. Is this where the giant in David and Goliath actually comes in? Was he a Nephilim? That, that, is, that is what is said by most of your, say, your rabbinic school of scholars and your mm-hmm. conservative Christian scholars. Uh, there's several references after the flood, which was supposed to be the thing that wiped them out, uh, where it says there were remnants of the Nephilim. Uh, there was uh, Goliath and his three brothers uh, lived in Gath. And uh, Goliath, I've heard many theories about that, that Goliath, you know, was somebody who suffered from giganticus or gi- gi- gigantism, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just not so. He was a mighty warrior. Uh, you don't have many people that have that disease physically, that once they pass uh, a certain age in their late teens, early 20s, that they can function like, uh, uh, like normal, like athletes or, or warriors. So, yes, Goliath was one of them. According to the biblical passage, he measured six cubits in a span, which is roughly, a cubit was roughly from your tip of your fingers to your elbow, so I suppose it all depends on who was doing the measuring, mm-hmm. but he, he was right around on an average height, about nine foot three, what it says, and, and he had this huge heavy-weighted coat of, of bronze and all of this, and, and he was a mighty warrior, and known for being a warrior, and so were his brothers. So, uh, uh, Goliath, yes, there's also uh, a man called Anak, who in... Uh, the book of Deuteronomy, I believe it is, uh, it's where they, uh, they invaded him, and uh, they found the Israelites invaded, and his bed was something like measured like 13 and a half feet long. Um, he was a giant man. Now, giants in the earth, there's a lot of mythology around giants, and you find that also in almost every other um, culture that's out there, major culture. And uh, I was just looking at that the other day, as a matter of fact, touching that section up in my book, and you have uh, um, Og, who is the king of, of uh, Bashan, uh, who is mentioned in the, uh, during the time of the uh, Israelite wandering. And Og, uh, that's where you get the word ogre from. Uh, you know, it's, it, all the, the etymology of words and the evolution of words all come from something. And so uh, he was considered to be also one of the Nephilim. And uh, there are several Nephilim mentioned when uh, Moses brings the children of Israel out of captivity and they make it to the promised land. They send out spies, and the spies come back and say, we can't go in there and fight and win against these people. They are the Nephilim, the children of Anak. And so uh, uh, they're mentioned several times, and I believe there's still a remnant of that today. And something I hit on in my book is the bloodlines. Now, I, I didn't get into any of the... There's a, there's a lot of writing about the Nephilim when you get into the Merovingian and the, mm-hmm. the Grail bloodline and, and all of that. I didn't really want to get into that. That's a book all on a, unto itself. 
But what you've got are, and I mentioned this in the book, is uh, the Garden of Eden scenario, uh, where you have Adam and Eve, and then the, the, the snake comes and right. Eve gives her the fruit, and she gives to Adam, and all of a sudden, oh, we're naked! God gets pissed off and curses everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, what happened there, the context is sexual, uh, and the ramifications are sexual. Um, because what happens is you have this snake character in the Bible, uh, the Hebrew name for him was Nakosh, that means serpent. Uh, but the definition of that word is cunning, um, deceiving, trickster, bringer of illumination and knowledge. So it might have this been another person. It was a person. It wasn't a snake yeah. at all. This is where you're, and you got to pardon me on this because we don't have a lot of time to dig into it deeply, but you start looking into the, the ufologist's uh, um, I call it a, the mythology, the mythos of the reptilians that have been on the earth for, for since the beginning. It, it links into that. But if we if we well, just said that that uh, the snake was actually a person, how do you how do you make this connection between reptilians? Well, uh, it, it, by person, I'm using I'm using person. Put quotes around it. It's the character of the serpent. Whoever the serpent was, he was not a snake. He was something else. But once and, again, if uh, we're talking about the reptilians, there's never been any archaeological finds to to collaborate uh, any well, of the statements of, of the UFO, UFO communities who come up with the, with the reptilian theory. All you have in history is, is the use of serpents and the use of snakes in, in mm-hmm. many different cultures, many different religions, many different symbologies that are associated with, with worship and bloodlines. Right. So it's, it's extrapolation, what I found most of it to be, and I, I even mentioned that in my book, is that some of this, I can't go quite that far and say, I believe this exists this way, but I wanted to present that data and say, this is a look at this. This is one theory that is put out for this. And, and what I did want to mention about this scenario in the garden is when I say it's sexual in context, uh, what really happened in the garden, and you'll have to go with me on this, uh, I can't give you all the research uh, in this conversation, but what I found was this conclusion, is that the reptilian character, or the serpent character, mm-hmm. um, had sex with Eve and fathered Cain. Cain and Abel being the two sons of Adam and Eve. And then, and then it says, and Eve went and brought Adam in on the act, and she also conceived from Adam, and he, con- and he fathered Abel. Mm-hmm. So she bore twins, which, by the way, every first family just about every first family mentioned in creation stories and all the different mythologies of creation through all different religions have some kind of multiple birth in there somewhere from the first family. How do we know that what, you know, like the Bible's based on myth itself, so how can we take anything that's in the Bible as, as anything that really happened? Well, this, this is the problem, and I address this in my book is just as much mythology that stems from things written in the Bible, you have things written in the Bible that stem from much older mythologies. Even the stories of Jesus Christ himself come from archetypes that have all the same data, you know, born of a, of a virgin, mm-hmm. a star-guided people to his birthplace, he had a ministry, he died in execution, did, you know, went to hell for three days and came back, and that's not even talking about Jesus. It's, it's, it's uh, uh, different gods that are before the time of Jesus. All right, let, let, let me ask let me ask you this. What do you think the 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 members of organized religions are going to say when your book comes out? Well, I I have said uh, 
I'm going to have the Jews hate me, the Christians hate me, and uh, the scientists hate me. Oh, yeah, and the ancient alienists hate me. Um, I think there's going to be lots of criticism because this topic generates its own controversy. Because it's not just a story about something that happened. You can tell the story of the Nephilim in six paragraphs, mm-hmm. and you don't have to write a book about it. There's the story. When you start examining if there's any factual data behind it, or what is, even in the mythologies, what are the languages used? How do they compare to other mythologies? What's out there? What happened historically? That's when you will start raising controversy because everybody's got a different view. All right, so I, let, I let, me ask, let me ask you, what in your book can be proved to be true? Well, uh, I know for certain one section. I wrote a chapter on Moses, mm-hmm. uh, and the only reason I did that was to establish the fact that Moses is traditionally the author of the book of Genesis and the next four books in the Bible. Yeah, we all know and that. It's very, it's very important to understand that he was an actual person and not this archetype in, in Christian or Judeo mythology. And so I, I go through the dating system. I date when he would have lived, and he lived, mm-hmm. by the way, in a, in a family of pharaohs that went from Tutmosis I, Tutmosis II, Tutmosis III, Hatshepsut was in there, Amenhotep II was the pharaoh of the Exodus by this dating system. And I go into all the things that he would have learned that first 40 years that he grew up in the palace of Egypt. And uh, there's many stories out of the Mishra. Uh, I'm sorry, the Mishnah, the, the Jewish traditional writings that, that have many, many stories of Moses in his first 40 years as a conquering general uh, for the Pharaoh of Egypt and the things that he did. I, I actually come out in my book and I say, I don't know if anybody else has ever pointed this out, but I said in the final chapter on, or paragraph on the Moses chapter, I said, you know, it occurred to me as I'm writing this that Moses was establishing himself as the Pharaoh God of Israel just like he grew up in this family of pharaoh gods in Egypt. Um, and uh, the person that would have been his rival for the throne, his stepbrother, adopted brother, would have been Tutmosis III, who brought 18th dynasty Egypt during the Middle Kingdom, uh, right around uh, the, the, the 14, uh, 1480s BCE. He brought Egypt to its golden pinnacle. All right, so let me, let me ask you this question. In today's yeah. society, why is all this information on the past that cannot be proved of any significance? I think it's just like any other historic piece of historical data. There's going to be history that is solid history that you want to learn from and know your history. Mm-hmm. History of the Civil War, the American Revolution, whatever you want to plug into that, under that, that category. Yeah, well, you see, the, 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 wait a sec, hold on here, hold on here. Yeah. When you're when you're talking about the Civil War, you're not talking about history that's based on a myth. You're actually dealing with fact. Right. right. This is this is where I'm going with that. You've got factual history that's important mm-hmm. to learn, and then I think you have mythological history or the history that is unproven history or that stems out of mythology or spirituality or religion. And we, we suddenly take those things, and because they come out of a religious context, we want to write them off. We want to say, ah, those aren't as important as it's religion. I was in a religious book, a book of faith. Mm-hmm. But what if these things have something that's going on? What if there is a connection to the ancient alienists? What if there is a connection to things that are happening in politics today? But what, things that are happening around the world today. Like, if somebody believes in the Bible, no matter what your book says, they're not going to believe it. Well, that's, that's right. And I actually said it's like, this is like uh, being a, a Republican trying to convince a Democrat uh, that that his uh, philosophies are wrong and his ideologies are wrong. You never get anywhere with it, uh, for the most part. So what this book does, in a sense, 
uh, I've come out of conservative Christianity. I mm-hmm. was, when I say I was in seminary, I was in a conservative fundamentalist Baptist seminary. I was a youth minister for many years. Okay. And I was in ministry, and I was just imbued in this stuff. This is the stuff I'm writing about here that made me sit back and say, wait a minute. Uh, I don't know where my faith is on this stuff anymore. I've drifted for many members. Well, there, there, there's sure. a good question. What was it that happened to you that that made you question your faith? There had to be well, something that happened. I chalked it up originally when I left the church. I chalked it up to methodologies, politics, and, and what I called extra biblical teachings mm-hmm. in the church. And I found it. I, I was very disillusioned with. Aren't we supposed to be as ministers teaching the Word of God, the Bible, and yet we've got this whole grocery list of other things that we add to it because it's our interpretation. You can't go to movies. You can't listen to rock and roll music. This is when I was a kid in the 70s. You know, we're burning, uh, our youth group would burn their, their record albums because uh, you know, you're listening to Kiss or, oh, they were knights in Satan's service. All rock music is wrong. So it's that kind of stuff. As I started getting older, where I said, wait a minute, God's not going to ask me after death, if that's who I mean, he's not going to ask me if I was a Baptist. Uh, um, and those are the methodologies of that, of that denomination that really drove me into looking into other things. And one of the first things I did find was this whole thing about the name of God, the mm-hmm. Elohim, the plurality. It was one of the first things I had discovered in researching. I thought, why was I never taught this? Why is that omitted? And I think one of the problems I find with this kind of, of, of a topic on the Nephilim if it's either avoided in organized religion because they, they either don't know enough about it, they don't know how to parse down the original languages, or it's a can of worms they don't want to open because it starts to open up the door to many other things that will start to question monotheism, it will start to question many other things. And all, all right. I, I always say in it, okay, so, I, I haven't thrown out the baby with the bathwater. All right, so, so let, me just, let me just throw this at you, okay, because we're running out of time very right. fast here. Has there ever been... A skeleton of one of these giants found? No, there have been skeletons found in pictures, and, and there's not a single one of them. It's like finding a Bigfoot core. But yet you can find the happened. you can find the skeletons of dinosaurs that roamed the earth way yep. before these people. So how come, with with the giants, the Nephilim, as with Bigfoot, as with extraterrestrials, anything that is fringe, there's never any skeleton. There's never any proof. And that is the problem. There's, there's not even proof that God exists. I believe I agree. there are certain veils that are unpierceable. And I think if these Nephilim have anything to do at all with spirituality, with spirit beings, with these connections to the heavenly and things like that, mm-hmm. this is going to be the great difficulty, is there's going to be things that you have to accept by almost, it takes almost as much faith to believe, when you take yourself out of the, the religious box, it takes as much faith to believe that these things existed as it does to not believe them. Well, it's, uh, it's, the easier, it's, is, easier, uh, it's easier to not believe, because... Number one, oh, sure. number one, there are not that many people when you take the population of the Earth compared to the number of people who actually believe in the ET connection or the, 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 the mythological connection to reality. Because, you know, in the big scheme of things, in order for people to believe other than their own religious philosophical beliefs, 
You need to or remember that old commercial from Wendy's, Where's the Beef? Hey, yep, yep. James Kroll is our special guest. His website is www.mortalmist.com. And James, what is the connection between psi and quantum physics? <laughs> Again, it's a speculative one. Um, you know, there's a lot of theories as to what accounts for psi phenomenon. I think the evidence for psi is overwhelming mm-hmm. if you really look at the statistical basis and, and, and experiments and so forth. Um, there's a lot of speculation. Certainly the, the one that, that jives with me the best is, in, is the notion of a multiverse. It, it's pretty clear when you dig into quantum physics that there is this connection between consciousness and matter. Um, there are those who speculate that human consciousness basically forks off different universes. I know that sounds like a rather profound yeah. concept. It's not my own. Uh, many excellent quantum physicists believe the same thing. Um, in, interestingly, if, if you believe the notion that consciousness works off multiverses or, or copies of the universe that you're a part of and, and you sort of one of them, if you will, it, it, it's interesting because the way I've actually modeled this dream sci experiment is to say, well, what if you left out those cards at a particular point in time, some sequence of events forked off a different universe? Mm-hmm. What if the dreaming mind is a projection into that universe? Um, you'd be extracting information from that space without turning over the cards in your real world. Um, it, it's sort of beyond the scope of what we could talk about on the radio. You know, there's a number of, of sketches and, and conjectures I have on, on the website that kind of speak to that hypothesis. What about uh, mortalmist.com? What can our listeners find out about that? You know, Mortal Mist was um, started up about two years ago. There's plenty of other lucid dreaming sites on the Internet, sites that boast 10, 20,000 members. Mortal Mist is a very small, very intimate site. Um, right now we have about 400 members or so. It's been up and running for about two years. I would call it more of a mature. It's very comprehensive, um, you know, very... Uh, easy to sort of uh, acclimate yourself and, and get some help from some more experienced lucid dreamers. Um, you know, the thing I would offer to your listeners is that I'm sort of re- um, heading up what we call the research guild, where we're proposing a number of scientific experiments that leverage lucid dreaming um, for, for, you know, the, the, the purpose of science. Um, so I've got a call for participation uh, for people to try the cranial electrostimulation technology for lucid dream induction. I need a lot more data and a lot more human experience in that regard to understand how effective it is. Um, we've got some ongoing experiments with regard to psi phenomena. Um, I've got some conjectures of my own, and again, these are not my own conjectures, but you know, there are certainly people who believe that you know, dreamers or astral voyagers are connected to ghosts in yeah. some sense. I, again, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's radically far-fetched, but the, the question becomes, if in fact ghosts are astral voyagers or lucid dreamers, how do you detect them? And, you know, again, if you can basically induce a lucid dream where you start in real work, in, in real life, if you will, well, then the notion of detecting an electromagnetic field, the notion of detecting negative or positive ions in relation to 
the astral projector or the lucid dreamer interacting with the real world, it becomes implementable. And it's a provocative question and, and, and one that was sort of just started to dig into. Dr. Kroll, I want to thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's been a great pleasure talking to you and uh, getting a better insight into what lucid dreaming is. I wish you much success, and if there's anything we can do to help you with your experimentation or if you need to get a message out there, please let us know. We'll be glad to have you back on at any time. Oh, uh, my, my pleasure, Robin. Thank you very much for having me. Good night, Doctor. Dr. James Kroll, Exonation, www.mortalmist.com. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news as the Exxon continues live and around the world from our studios in beautiful, sunny, and warm Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. 